We are starting a new little study, and I've entitled it The Supremacy, the Supremacy of God's Word. So on Wednesday nights is our more in-depth Bible study, and we've just come off of a long study, and we're starting this new one. I hope not to spend a whole lot of time on this, maybe two or three times at most, um, and that'll give us an opportunity to maybe ask different kinds of questions and go a little deeper, or ask different kind of question and go in another direction. So anyway, Wednesday night is your opportunity. If there's something about the Bible that you want to know more about, this is the opportunity to ask me about it, and then we can pursue it a little bit more. So that's what we do during our Wednesday night Bible study. So we're going to start looking at the, the supremacy of God's Word, and tonight is just kind of an introduction to the Word of God and its uniqueness, and then we can go from there to either uh, what English versions we should use, or how did we get the 66 books of the Bible that we have inside of our, our Bible versions, or anything along those lines. So you be thinking about it as we're going through this, uh, where you'd like to go next, and then I'll just kind of take our cue from there. So as we consider this topic, first of all, I want us to consider that the Bible is unlike any other book. The Bible is unlike any other book. So if we take the Bible, we cannot put it next to a history book or a science book or a philosophy book or any other book. It is not like any other book. It is unique. And there are a number of reasons why it's unique. So I want to pursue this first of all. And uh, we'll, as we go through the verses, this will kind of unfold. So the Bible is unlike any other book. Uh, I have to just share an example um, I used to go to these conferences for Bible professors, you know, religion professors and so on. So, you know, they'd have their conference in a particular city and it was different every year and it'd be in a convention center and they would have all of the book vendors just kind of, you know, coming in and selling their uh, books, you know, different publishers and so on and making contacts and all of that. So the, the part where all of these vendors set up was pretty large. And so there'd be all of these books and each publisher's kind of putting forth their new um, editions or their new volumes or whatever. So I remember picking up, I remember picking up a book and it had some pretty good sounding title like the Christian documents of the Bible or something like that. It was, it was a pretty straightforward uh, title that might have appealed to uh, an academic. So I opened the book and I look at the table of contents. And so, in the table of contents, it had the Gospel of Matthew, like you might expect, and the Gospel of Mark, like you might expect, and then it had the Gospel of Barnabas, and the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Peter, and, and it just kind of went through a list of all of these different early, early Christian writings, right? And it just kind of put them together in that book. And it was, it's misleading to do that because what happens then is that the gospel of Matthew is put on the same level as the gospel of Peter and they're not on the same level one is scripture inspired by God and the other is a simply a work of man so I'll kind of explain this as we go through that but uh, we can't do that with the scripture the scripture is not on the same level as other books of history or or anything it is unique and it is different and it is unlike anything else so let's look at some verses first of all hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 it says for the word of god is living and powerful 
and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So the word of God is living and powerful. And this separates it and makes it unique. So when we go to the Word of God and we study the the Word of God, this is, if you will, God's letter to us. It is His spoken Word to us as His people, or even, you know, it's available to the world now. But it is God's spoken Word to people. And because it is God who is speaking it, it is not like me. It's not like me writing a book. Uh, there's no comparison between me writing a book and God writing a book. You, you know, the, the, there's a huge difference there. So uh, he is the eternal, almighty, powerful God, and, and this is his word to us as opposed to anything that anyone else might write. And because it's his word, it is alive and it is powerful because he is behind every single word we find in it. Any promise that he makes, we know 100% it will come to pass. Any truth that is revealed, it is truth without any error or anything because he has spoken it and he, has, he is perfect. And so it comes to us in that way. All right, another verse, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says, For it is impossible for those who are enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then he keeps on going. Now what is, it, what is important to understand here in this verse is that those who come to God will experience him in a unique way. I mean, after all, when we worship God, we're not worshiping an idol or an inanimate object or anything like that. We are worshiping a person. God is alive, he is real, and he is personal. And so we have a relationship with him. And so it is, important, it is impossible for those who come into contact with him to not be changed by him. And so here gives us several, several ways in which that takes place. Um, you have, we are enlightened, we taste of the heavenly gift, we become partakers of the Holy Spirit. And then the next one here, we have tasted the good word of God. So it's taking the word of God and it is calling it good. And it is uh, uh, using this word taste to kind of uh, uh, associate it with you know, the food that we eat, which is not a unique image in the Bible. For example, you remember when Jesus was tempted, tempted in the wilderness? The devil, he, was, he had fasted for 40 days and he's hungry and the devil comes to him and he tells Jesus to turn these stones into bread. And Jesus replies, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So this idea of the word of God being associated with food is not a unique thing. And so here it is that we come in to contact with God, and we taste of his good word. Okay, and that means we take it in, we, in, we enjoy it, it impacts us. So this is what the word of God does for us. Another verse, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says, who, talking about Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and look at this next part, and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he, him, when he had by himself purged 
our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he had... He upholds all things by the word of his power. Or some of your translations might say powerful word. Either way, we we see the same thing, that everything in creation is upheld by his word. Now we know that everything in creation began with the word, right? You remember that in Genesis? God said, let there be. And then he created So we know that his word is what was used to create things, but what we don't often consider is that that same word that brought things into being continues to uphold all things and will continue to do so for all of eternity. So there is this powerful word that supports and upholds all things. Things continue because God is behind it, undergirding it, holding it up, however you want to picture it. So that's Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 and then Matthew chapter 4 verse 4 and this is the verse that we just um, referenced. Jesus responding to the devil's temptation to turn the stones to bread said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we see that the word of God is given to us by God in order to feed our spirits, to strengthen our spiritual life. Just as food nourishes our physical bodies, so the Word of God, unlike any other book, the Word of God is meant to strengthen our spiritual lives. And so every time we eat, how many of you ate today? All right, most of you ate today? Okay. (laughs) Every time we eat, we are to use the eating of our physical food for the nourishment of our physical bodies to be a reminder to us to to remember to feed on the spiritual word for the sake of our spiritual well-being, and that is the word of God. All right, so that's the first point there. The word, the Bible, is unlike any other book. Uh, Now, you might have some questions, but I'll probably get to one or two of them as we go along, and if I don't, then we can have a time to ask them. So that brings us to our second second, uh, point And I want to cover here the different manifestations of the Word. So when we consider the Word of God, uh, and we say the Bible, and we say Scripture, or something like that, normally we have in mind this. But there is a little bit more to the Word of God or to the Bible than this book, than these written words. So that's what I want to uh, think about. First of all, there is the written Word. There is Scripture. There is this Bible, which has these words in it. And when we talk about the inspiration of the Word of God, we believe that every word is important. Every word is inspired by God. It is uh, not something that is loosely put together. It is uh, important to the way that it comes to us. Every word is inspired by God, and so we cannot shift it or move it or change it or adjust it or anything like that. He has given it to us. And when He speaks, He doesn't make a mistake. When I speak... It's like I'm always stuttering and stammering and just kind of, if I pause, it's not for effect. It's because I don't know what I'm going to say next, you know, that kind of a thing. That's just me. I'm imperfect in my speaking. But God is not like that. So when he reveals his word, he reveals it perfectly. Every single word is important. So we consider, first of all, the scripture, the written word. So this is one, I'm using the word manifestation here, but one representation or manifestation of the word of God. It is the written word of God. But what makes 
the Word of God unique is that it is more than just words on a page here. And that brings us to, well, actually I have a verse here. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So this verse is like all Scripture. Every part of it is given by God. So that, that's kind of the point there. So that brings us to the second one. And the second manifestation of the word is the spoken word. The spoken word. So, again, going back to Genesis chapter 1, we see it in the beginning there that God said, right? This is the spoken word of God. And a lot of these verses that we might look to that talk about the word of God, well, it might be referring to the scripture, it might be referring to God speaking, you know, his word that is spoken. It could be either one. Because the spoken word is another important part of what we consider to be the word of God. So we have the spoken word, and we see that right from the beginning. It is the spoken word by which all of creation was made. And then we come to Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. And this is Isaiah the prophet speaking concerning God when he speaks. And it says, this is God speaking here. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Now, here's a really important aspect about our lives. The words that come out of our mouth are important, right? Now, you know, we all grew up with a little ditty, sticks and stones might break my bones, but words can never help hurt me. But uh, the, the opposite is true, and we've all experienced that. Our words can really hurt somebody else. Even if we don't hurt them or injure them physically, the words that come out of our mouth are extremely important, and they, uh, they, they must be spoken with care. So there is a lot of verses that talk about the importance of the way that we speak. We should not lie. We should always tell the truth, right? We should always... Uh, give words that are encouraging, that are uplifting. We should always use our words in order to accomplish or to stand with the truth. Our words are important. And so we want to take care on how we speak. Now James talks about how the most difficult part of our bodies to control is the tongue. And so while it is so important for us to speak in the right way, it is one of the most difficult things that we have to do. Have you ever said something and just wished you hadn't said it? <laughs> you know, in a fit of anger, you just kind of let it all out. And, uh, or in a fit of whatever you're fitting, you know, it just kind of comes out of your mouth without... You don't think about it, you just, it comes out and you've hurt that other person. or You've done the damage. It's, and you can't take your words back. You know, once they come out of your mouth, you can't take it back, you can't change it. So uh, it's so important. How we speak is really important. And don't let anybody, uh, don't let anybody tell you anything different. There, there's this kind of uh, mentality, I think, in our day that, well, you know, I've got to be true to myself, and I've got to be honest, and this is how I'm feeling, and, you know, it just comes out again. Uh, and it's kind of presented as a virtue. I am being honest and true, and I'm just speaking what I'm feeling. But, but that's really not a virtue, scripturally speaking, because there's a lot about us that needs to be kind of reined in. And what I'm feeling, it might be truly how I'm feeling, but it is not right the way that I'm feeling. 
And so I have to kind of, I have to bring it in. And I, I have to control myself. I have to, by the Spirit, con- I have to walk in the Spirit so that I won't follow the lusts of the flesh. So I have to be careful how I speak. And just because I'm thinking it or feeling it doesn't mean it needs to come out of my mouth. I, I, have, to, I have to adjust how I'm thinking and feeling and make it line up with what is right in God's eyes and then speak in a good way, in a wholesome way. So anyway, um, this, this way of speaking that God gives to us is patterned after God when he speaks. Because when he speaks, it happens. When he speaks, it uh, accomplishes what it is sent out to do. And we have been made in the image of God, right? And part of our ability, or part of our characteristic as being, having been made in the image of God is the fact that we are able to speak and to do things with, or to make things happen by our words. And um, um, there is so much I could talk about when we talk about our, you know, the words that are spoken from our mouth. And, and uh, we can't create from nothing, but we can make things happen just by speaking. It is a really important and powerful quality that we possess. And so that's why the Bible just has so much about how we speak. So anyway, the spoken word is the second manifestation of God's word, the spoken word that he has spoken for it. Uh, The third manifestation or characteristic of the word of God, and, and this is when we talk about the incarnate word, the incarnate word. So when we talk about the incarnate word, what are we talking about? Or who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus. So Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Word of God. And the Word of God, Jesus, was made flesh. And uh, we look at John chapter 1, verse 14. And, and of course, this is the introduction to the Gospel of John. And John is really exalting Jesus for who he is. And when we come down to verse 14, we're going to look at the first couple of verses in a moment. But when we come to verse 14, we see that the word became flesh. And right there, we have a connection between the word of God and the presence of Jesus having been born on this earth and going forth. He is the manifest presence of the word of God on this earth when he was born. And so uh, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we look at Jesus, and he is the incarnate word, or the word made flesh. And he dwelt among us, and of course we know that uh, he spoke the words of the kingdom, and he manifested the presence of the kingdom during his life. And his greatest work was when he went to the cross, and he bore our sins, and he died paying the penalty for our sins, and then rose again in victory over sin and death. And so, um, by his work, he brought to pass the promises that God had made uh, concerning us. So this is a wonderful uh, truth concerning the Word of God. And then that brings us to the fourth and final manifestation of the Word. And this is the eternal Word. So it's not just that Jesus was the Word when he became a man. He was the Word eternally. So if we go back to the beginning of the Gospel of John, remember when it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that was verse 14. But here are the first two verses of the Gospel of John. And it says here, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, this, these two verses are so impactful that any false religion or movement or anything that denies the deity of Christ has to change these verses. And so one of those groups are the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I don't know what your encounter with the Jehovah's Witnesses has ever been, but uh, they say a lot of Christian things, but they really are not Christian. And so what they do with this is they say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. He was in the beginning with God. And so there's a drastic difference. That little word A just put in there just makes a huge difference between Christianity and what, what uh, we believe and what the Jehovah's Witnesses purport to be true. So there's a huge difference there. When we consider the word, we are talking about the eternal word of God, the second person of the Trinity. He was God. He is God. All right. So those are the four manifestations of uh, the Word of God. Does anybody have any, any questions before we move on? Any questions or thoughts? Okay, let's go on then. Now we want to talk about the authorship of the written Word. The authorship of the written Word. So the question is this. Who wrote the Bible? Now, before you answer, this is a really simple question on the one hand, and yet, you know, we can get stumped by it. So I heard not too long ago, I mean, it's been several months, Two people were talking, and one person asked the other person, who wrote the Bible? And the answer was, well, you know, the 66 people that God had used to, you know, write the Bible. Jeremiah, Moses, Matthew, and so on and so forth. 66. Well, there's 66 books. So, you know, the authors, I don't think there's that, there weren't that many. There weren't 66 because some of them wrote more than one. But, you know, the, the people who wrote the 66 books, books of the Bible. That was, that was the response. And in a, in a certain sense, that's true. I mean, God used these people to write the, the, the Word of God. However, the number one answer that we have to go to, and here, you know, we all say, yeah, when we hear it, but God is the primary author of Scripture. God wrote the Bible. He is the primary author of Scripture. So when we consider some of the things for example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, when we consider some of the passages of the Old Testament where we might say, well, David wrote this psalm or Isaiah wrote this prophecy and you know, we might attribute the passage of Scripture to the person who wrote it and it's okay to do that because the Bible does that too. But we also have to remember that behind this, it's not just Isaiah or David or Moses, but it is God himself who is inspiring the words that they are writing. So we see here, it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes a psalm of David. So you see what's happening? The New Testament here in the book of Hebrews is attributing to David's psalm the authorship to the Holy Spirit, primarily. David wrote through the Holy Spirit. So therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes from Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. So today, if you will hear my voice, hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of the trial in the wilderness, in the day of trial in the wilderness. And then he goes on and he continues to quote from Psalm 95, 7. So you all see the point here? It is, when we look at Psalm 95, we're looking at a Psalm of David, but... The, but, 
you know, Scripture um, acknowledges that it's the Holy Spirit who is responsible for that, primarily, using David. Okay? So that's the, our first response then. And, and I think this is really important for us to kind of state up front in our day when people ask who wrote the Bible. Because the world will say, well, no, God didn't write the Bible. Men wrote the Bible. That, that, that's kind of the first response, the first statement that people in our society will say. And so we have to, right up front, say God wrote the Bible. He is the one who is responsible. And I'll say more about this in a moment. But this is, this is critical. I mean, there, this makes a, a huge distinction here. And so we can go forward um, after we say that God wrote the Bible, and then we can talk about you know, some of the other things, and that's all fine. But uh, that brings us to, well, who, who wrote the Bible? Secondly, men did, as the instruments of God. Men wrote it as God's instruments. So if I was, you know, I'm, pre- I'm uh, preaching this message here and, and uh, I've got it all written out on my, you know, fancy schmancy you know, iPad and, uh, and you think it's just phenomenal. So you come up after the message and you go up to my iPad and you say, what a great message that was. Well, that's ridiculous because my iPad is not responsible. The iPad is just the instrument. I'm responsible for it. So when we say that David wrote it, but not God, that's like attributing to the iPad the success of the message rather than to God. David and Moses and Matthew, they are all the instruments of God that he used in order to bring the Bible about. And this is really pretty amazing um, that God used the personalities and the circumstances and the situations of each of these people's lives in order to convey his truth. And only God can do that. And in reality, uh, you know, it is nothing for me to pick up my instrument and use it. But you wouldn't attribute to the instrument anything. You would attribute it to me, the, the user of the instrument. So when someone says that men wrote the Bible, and we say as Christians that God wrote the Bible, it is not an, an issue of, we, we shouldn't get into, well, let's look at this passage, or let's look at this history, and just kind of determine who wrote it. It, it really comes down to, uh, do you believe in God or not? Because if you believe in God, well, it's nothing for him to use a man as an instrument, right? Absolutely nothing. We, we wouldn't even bat an eye at the, the fact that God can use any person as his instrument to record anything he wants or to do anything he wants, right? Right? I mean, if God exists and he's all-powerful, he can do that. If God doesn't exist, well, then you have a problem. Who wrote the Bible? So the authorship of the scripture is not really, we, we shouldn't wrangle about, you know, texts and histories and, and all of those things. What, we, what it really boils down to is, do you believe in God or not? If you believe in God, it is no it's a non-issue. He can, use it. he can use anyone he wants, in any circumstance he wants, to record or reveal his word. So, men wrote the Bible as God's instruments. So, let's uh, look at some verses here. It says in Mark chapter 12, verse 36, For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. So, there we see both in the verse. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one who's inspiring David. Uh, the Holy Spirit is using David as his instrument. David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
That's Mark chapter 12, verse 36. And then we have Acts 28, 25. It says, So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah, the prophet, to our fathers. All right? Again, we see that it is the Holy Spirit who's doing the speaking. He is using Isaiah as the instrument in order to speak to the fathers. So uh, that's Acts chapter 28. Verse 25. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, all of it, and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And then 1 Peter chapter 20 and 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 say, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit, God is the one who is inspiring the, the written word of God. So, we, we talk about uh, revelation. God reveals his word. Inspiration, God moves upon a person to bring about his word. Those are two important ideas when we talk about the Word of God. Revelation, God, not to be confused with, well, it's similar, but the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that has all those great fancy stories in there. Well, I don't say stories as they're not true, but you know what I mean. It's the great account at the end of the Bible, the revelation of God. But that's what it is. It is a revealing, revelation, a revealing and then inspiration, the Spirit of God moving upon a person in order to do or to write as he wants. Hebrews chapter, 11, verses, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 says, God at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So we have God who speaks to his people in various ways. And the most important way that he speaks is by his son, Jesus Christ. That's the most important way that he speaks to us. All right, so since God is the author, since God is the author of the Bible, we have one book, one book, not 66, a collection of 66 separate books. We have one book, and its author is God. Because God is the author, we don't have just the words of Moses, Isaiah, and Paul. We have the word of God himself through these people. We have, because God is the author of the Bible, we have one message and one theme. This book is about God, and it is given to us about life. Because, the, because God is the author... The Bible is without error, mistake, or contradiction because God does not make mistakes, right? And then, because, the, because God is the author, we have more than just a historical book about the lives of the, the way people lived way back when. So, the book, the Bible, is relevant and it applies to us. It is not just when we, when we read the historical accounts, it's not just about what happened to those people in the past. It is a reflection 
of the principles that God has instilled within creation, principles that we are still responsible for living by. So, it is a relevant book for us. It is filled with principles that we must follow. It gives to us a true hope for the future and how all things will culminate in him. And we also ultimately find in here the fulfillment of the word found in Jesus Christ. He is the word of God. It is all ultimately about him, and he fulfills it all for us. Okay. That's our message.